Welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast, helping you invest well, understand money and achieve the best tax outcomes. Hey everybody and welcome to the RSM Talk Big podcast budget webinar special. Today we are in the studio and we've got a panel of experts who are going to talk us through the budget. We're going to talk through the economic, political, personal and taxation aspects of the budget. So listen in, this is going to be great and it'll bring you right up to date with the budget. You can also get further details on our budget by going to the RSM website, rsm.com.au and you'll be able to download our budget special. We had our team up all night working on that and it's a cracking report. I'm joined here at the moment by Chris. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Thanks for having me in here. Yeah, special week for us. Uh, RSM has turned 100 this week. Yeah, it's when you look back, it's sort of, you don't think about how long it's been around and the change that it's been through. It's, I know a lot of us don't actually even know the full history, so hearing a lot of that this week has been quite interesting. Yeah, it's been incredible. So RSM started on the 27th of March, 1922, when a group of accountants decided to buy uh, six Model T Fords and drive out into regional areas of Western Australia to do tax returns. From there, we've grown and we are now, uh, I think we're number nine in the country. Yeah, who who would have thought driving out into the, the wilderness of Outback WA to do taxes was a way where a size of business size of RSM. Yeah, start. 14, 1,400 <laughs> staff, <laughs> yeah. and we all still love each other and have a great time. So I encourage you to listen through the webinar. There's some terrific questions that are, are asked throughout it. Uh, so we have uh, our experts, and uh, let's kick it off. I'd like to introduce the panel members uh, here today. In the studio, we have uh, Paul Bongiorno. Paul's a veteran political commentator and journalist, uh, well-respected in the community, and we really look forward to the colour that he can bring to this. We also have David Pearce, David's Executive Director of the Centre for International Economics. Uh, David is a specialist in climate change, and he's going to bring some economic perspective. Online, I'm joined by Mary Lai. Mary is a principal in the RSM tax team, and she'll be doing the first presentation on tax and its impacts uh, through the budget. I'm also joined by Effie Zahos. Uh, Effie is one of the country's top personal financial commentators, and she'll bring you that personal aspect that uh, you'd like to know. The RSM team has been working all uh, night on the budget alert. If you haven't had a chance to have a download our budget alert, I'll have one of my assistants put a link in the uh, commentary section and you can click on that link, download our budget alert. You'll also have the opportunity to answer or have any of your questions. And if you put your questions in in the commentary box, note who, which panellists the question is to. If we have time, hopefully we'll get to it, but we, we will be getting through some of those questions uh, as we go through the session. So our first presenter today will be Mary Lai. Mary's going to run us through the taxation implications. Uh, welcome, Mary. Um, welcome, everybody. I just want to kickstart the process with a few poll questions. So if you can get our poll questions on the screen. So remember, we asked you before the budget, who will be the winners in the 2022-23 budget if you were to make a guess? So what was actually your answer? So most people expected individuals to be the winner. Okay, that's, that's good to know. Um, so our next question, it's, it's um, same question, but we're asking who should have been the winners instead? So if we can 
bring that on the screen. So who should have been the, the real winners of this budget? If we can draw that poll to a close. Okay, we're actually seeing individuals and families again. Um, so that, that's actually very interesting that our guesses actually align with our wish list and, and, and great to say that our budget, our wish has actually come true. Uh, we do think our, our uh, individuals and families are the real winners of this budget. So let me start sharing my screen with you um, on presentation. So um, overall, our view is that this is a responsible budget. Um, we have scored uh, 65 points out of 100. Clearly, it's clearly a pre-election budget and a temporary budget, uh, which wasn't uh, a surprise to anyone. So just a very high level um, of what our budget actually cover. I'm not sure if you had a chance to digest all the measures that were introduced yesterday, um, but if you take you, in terms of corporates, um, we think the real winners are the ones with the simple operating models. The government is investing in digital capability to shape the future of tax compliance, making it easier for businesses to report. Um, and there's also the expansion of the employee share scheme rules that's welcoming, allowing employees to make large offers with an employee share scheme in an unlisted company. It'll be quite interesting to see how many of those uh, unlisted companies actually take up the offer. In terms of the losers for corporates, we think um, the large corporates and trusts are the multinationals that are losing out. Obviously, um, a lot of these measures are not really um, affecting them directly. Into the SME space, um, we do believe that there are some very exciting measures that came out with the budget uh, for the SME. Um, generally with the annual turnover of less than 50 million, they're able to get that additional bonus 20% deduction on upskilling their staff through, through attending external training courses, uh, as well as uptaking technology. In terms of the technology, there is a limit of $100,000 spent annually. So the tax benefit is really limited to approximately about $5,000. Again, unfortunately, that's only limited to um, small to medium sized businesses. Um, in terms of the various COVID-19 business grant payments, it's good to see that there's certainty that these payments will not be subject to tax. They're treated as non-accessible, non-exempt income. And then there's also the confirmation that COVID-19 tax expenses are deductible and not subject to FBT for employers. Lastly, there's the GDP uplift rate that is reduced from 10% down to 2% which is used for the purpose of calculating the PYG installment and the GST installments. Again, that's a short-term fix in terms of cash flow, but uh, really it's only a timing fix. Our individuals who we think are the real winners uh, on the superannuation fund front, it's good to see that the, the superannuations left alone, um, other than the extension of the 50% minimum pension drawdown reduction until June 23, uh, it is exciting to see that there's the additional $420, $420 added to the current low and middle income tax offset, which means it takes the maximum offset for a single income household to $1,500 and $3,000 for a dual income household. There's no change to personal tax rates. Um, in terms of childcare, we are seeing more affordable childcares um, provided to families families can now receive a 50% subsidy for their first child in childcare, and as well as an additional 30% subsidy for their second child and sub subsequent children. Uh, there is also the immediate boost of the $250 one-off payment made to welfare recipients, uh, and that's expected to be handed out in April. 
International tax, um, we're not seeing overall, there's very limited tax measures provided on the international tax front. Um, the ATO, however, is receiving additional funding uh, for its task tax avoidance task force into the 2025 year, which actually impacts those multinationals, uh, whether or not they have engaged in tax avoidance schemes. It does mean additional burdens for these um, multi-internationals. And in fact, a lot of them are already being focused on, you know, uh, uh, transfer pricing, other international tax review. Uh, it is welcoming to see that the foreign investment framework, it's going to be simplified. So, so that's attractive for uh, certain foreign investors providing them with further certainties. Uh, I'll touch on here about the patent box regime. Um, it is, that was a, a measure that was introduced in, the, in last year's budget, uh, limiting to one particular sector last year, but this year uh, the real winners are the Australian companies carrying out R&D activities in the agricultural or low emission technology sector. Um, again, attracting foreign capital um, to, to come to Australia. Overall, the losers we think are those that are already, you know, stuck with ATO review um, because of the the, uh, the tax avoidance task force, and and um, they they probably will end up being in yeah, bigger reviews with the additional budget that's handed over to the ATO. Okay, um, indirect tax. I think that's the one that's relevant for everybody. Uh, if you have a car, a temporary halving of the current fuel exercise rate from 44 cents to 22 cents for a six month period, that will be um, immediate effective. Uh, there's actually no other substantive GST related changes in this budget. Uh, we are seeing some streamlining measures to benefit fuel and alcohol producers, importers and distributors. Um, but yeah, and then as well as some tariff concessions for importing COVID-19 related product and those concessions have been made permanent. Innovation, I've touched on briefly earlier uh, that the real winners are the ones that are the large companies that are developing IP in those sectors that can take advantage of the patent box regime. Uh, losers are the ones, the startups, the, the SMEs, those that are in pre-revenue stage where um, they won't be able to benefit the, the reduced tax rate, uh, as well as those innovators that are already with a market-ready product, um, they wouldn't be able to, again, access this, this uh, regime. But there is additional funding that's directed to um, research to drive university industry collaboration, workforce mobility, and that's welcoming to see. So for our industries, um, agribusiness, we've touched on that a little bit again um, when I spoke about the patent box, uh, that, that's welcoming. And they're also getting some tax breaks for primary producers with carbon credit or biodiversity credit income. Um, if they're looking at upgrading their software, uh, such as, you know, using livestock tracking systems, they can take benefit of the additional 20% deduction. Unfortunately, those that are looking at, um, you know, investing in equipment, machineries or sheds beyond the, the 30 June 2023 year wouldn't be able to take advantage of the, the immediate um, deduction regime, which is due to end in 2023. Cybersecurity, um, cyber, that's an exciting um, thing to see that the Australia is, you know, giving the largest ever investment in the country for intelligence and cyber capability. Um, lots of funding that's provided to you know, tertiary students, cadets in AI. Um, so that's exciting uh, initiative from the government. Health. 
Um, overall, we think on the health front that it's a, a, a score of 80 because the general Australian will be able to benefit from this uh, targeted support for, for families, for women. There's continual investments in COVID-19 support. Um, and, and there's also the manufacturing of the Moderna vaccine in Australia, as well as improvement in the aged care system. Technology, uh, technology, it's pretty much limited to those small businesses, less than 50 million aggregated turnover who decide to adopt and invest in, in more technology focused strategy. Uh, there's, there's actually very little incentive for the large businesses to further invest in their technology. So our last two sectors, uh, property, we're seeing that there's some ongoing support for first home uh, buyers as the government continue to extend the home guarantee scheme to, to improve home ownership and, and construction. There's plenty of spending in the infrastructure space. So again, that, that's welcoming to see. Um, and finally, the manufacturing space, we're seeing that the Australian manufacturing companies with a key focus on key national priorities are the big winners with more funding, uh, but those that are not operating in those sectors will, will lose out from this budget. So that's overall a very quick high-level highlight of our budget. Thank you. Uh, terrific. Thank you, Mary. Now, uh, we've next got Effie, who's uh, best known as, uh, or one of her roles was editor of Money magazine, which she helped start in 1999. And she's now editor at large with Canstar. Uh, Effie, really well known for helping Aussies make the most of their money. Um, Effie, what's the view from a personal point of view? Yeah, look, I would agree. I think, Mary, you made a statement a little bit up front, or someone did. This is definitely a pre-election budget. And look, there, I guess to be fair to, to the government, I mean, any government in right now doing this budget would probably be doing the same thing. I mean, what I've seen over the past two years and what I report on every day, I guess, even on today's show, is the real sentiment that consumers are feeling. And when you look at even the, the numbers, so, you know, inflation set to, to end this financial year at, what, 4.25, you've got wage growth at 2.75. There's a huge gap here between prices and what households are getting into their income. And it's that pain that's been happening. So really the government had no kind of choice but to come out with these sugar hits. And that's what they are. I think we've got to understand what they are and consumers aren't silly. They know, yes, this is a sugar hit. Um, but it's much needed right now. And, and I think at least, you know, credit to what they've presented, the good news behind them is at least we've had a robust economy. We've had more people going to jobs, more people working, paying taxes, more money collecting. So the tax receipts are there. You've got high commodity prices. So it's all in their favour. So, you know, can they afford to spend a little bit? They can. I mean, ideally, it'd be great to knock down this debt, but we're just not there yet. So for me, the highlight, obviously, was what was proposed on a household consumer level. And um, Mary's touched on, on some of those, and I'm sure we can go into more detail later on. But on a top level, you know, $8.6 to be thrown in over the next six months, that's a lot of cash there. They're targeting it. Um, obviously, the, the one that um, is a bit controversial is the, the, the fuel excess, lowering that down. Um, 
so I checked Fuel uh, Fuel Watch today, actually. Their prices haven't fallen yet. <laughs> They're down about 1.7%. It will take a little while, but that's effective immediately. That is going to help households. It was good to see that was on diesel, of course. Will we see that filter through to lower prices at the supermarket, lower prices, you know, if I go out to dinner because of the cost of supply? I'm not quite sure yet. I know they're going to be pretty heavy handed on uh, companies or, or retailers that don't pass that price discount there. So we've got that. And the other two obviously were to do with the tax offset. One thing, I don't know, Mary, you can probably explain this later on. A lot of consumers get confused and think the tax offset is up $1,500 in my bank account and it's coming my way. It's not. It is a tax offset. It reduces your tax bill. So that's something that a lot of people get disappointed when they get down to the nitty gritty of things. But again, it will go a long way to help. And that 250 payment, it was nice to see that the eligibility obviously crossed to people on uh, concessions cards as well. So hoping then the uh, uh, self-funded retirees will fall into that net as well. So it's worth looking at what concessional cards you've got. I mean, that's the, the top level area. The um, uh, home buy, I'm sure we'll touch on that, but I do have a few kind of opinions on where they're taking this affordability with home ownership. But overall, it was nice to see those measures come through. Household will, will very much need it. The big question is, after this six-month period, what happens then? Um, you know, this budget really does rely on its forecast to be right and uh, that we don't fall off a cliff between now and say, you know, the next couple of years. Terrific. Thank you, Effie. That's uh, fantastic. Uh, I'm sure there'll be some more questions for you later on. Now, uh, you've already commented, we heard Effie talk then about some of the political aspects of the budget. So I've got Paul Bongiorno here with me in the studio. And Paul, there's some uh, terrific political implications on this, uh, mate. What do you, talk us through it. Well, the most obvious and the biggest political Im implication is the government, if you can believe all the major opinion polls, is on the precipice of falling off the cliff. Uh, now, I can tell you, talking to um, government backbenchers since last night, uh, they're still very nervous. They're not sure that this uh, will do the trick that they want, but they say the, they are confident that the Prime Minister and the Treasurer have given it their last best shot. This this is a political document. They scoff at uh, the economists and others raising doubts about wage increases, raising doubts about pushing inflation, raising doubts about interest rates rising, blowing it all away. What they and the Treasurer and the Prime Minister are concentrating on, fixed on, is the run-up in the next two months to a May 21 election. If they can get over that and, and do more than save the furniture and actually pull off another miracle win, they'll be more than happy. Now, if we take history as any guide, government a government that's been in this much trouble as measured by the polls for as long as this one and, and is as far behind, no matter what it throws at the electorate, they can't quite do it. And the last best example historically for that was the Howard Costello budget of 2007, where they flew the kit through the kitchen sink and more uh, at voters. There was $32 billion worth of tax cuts, which dwarfs the $8.6 billion of one-off payments uh, that were, uh, and, and uh, petrol bowels of relief that we've uh, seen uh, in the latest budget. But um, so uh, the view is that voters see what you're doing 
for them is great and we thank you, but you owe it to us. And what's to stop us taking the money and running to the other side to give them a go? That's the sort of the dynamic uh, that uh, you know could, could well be there. It, it, it's interesting, the uh, Labour leader Al Albanese today, if he can get this message out, it may uh, undo some of the hopeful thinking rather than wishful thinking of the government. He says, what's being offered is like a fake tan and will last as long. <laughs> and, and he says it's a vote buying exercise. The Prime Minister should, should just staple a check to a Liberal how to vote card. So uh, yeah, uh, let, let's see uh, how it does play out. One last thing I'd say from a political point of view, you've probably seen uh, the reports in the Daily Telegraph and others that Liberal MPs, particularly in the city electorates, particularly in Sydney, they don't want Scott Morrison to campaign in their electorates. These are principally the people facing um, uh, challenges from the so-called tealed independents. So if your chief salesperson is no longer the asset that he was in 2019, you're in even bigger trouble. You raised some really interesting uh, shadows there, Paul, and stuff we'd love to go in. There's some great questions coming through for Paul on the po uh, politi political angles. Uh, just a reminder, if you want any more details on this, do go to rsm.com.au or the link in the comments box to uh, download our budget update. Uh, next up, we've got David Pearce. David's a, a Director for the Centre of International Economics, an expert on climate change and a well-versed economist. Uh, David, from an economical point of view, a bit quiet on climate change, but really interested to hear your opinions. Indeed, very, very quiet on climate change. But maybe, I mean, Paul's just outlined a lot of political drama. There is actually a bit of economic drama in this budget, but it's behind the scenes and unstated. Uh, the first one is that the Australian economy still hangs on commodity prices. Amazingly, I mean, we, we talk about manufacturing, we talk about services, but the whole budget has swung on commodity prices. So that seems to me to be an important thing to keep in mind. The second point is that I can remember all of the all of the oil price crises we've had, oil price shocks, as economists call them, starting in seventy in the in the early seventies up to the latest one just before, in fact, the uh, the last recession. And it's amazing to me that the oil, the price of oil, the price of petrol, still drives politics in this country to the extent that governments think that they have to do something which is actually unprecedented, which is cutting the fuel excise. It doesn't, of course, change the price of petrol. It changes it at the Bowser, but it doesn't change it to the economy. Uh, the other thing, drama, which I think is not in the budget, but which is important, is when you look at the forward estimates, there's very, very little growth in real wages. Now, people talk a lot about real wages. We've had very very small growth in real wages in Australia for a long time. Um, your wage is the reward for all the economic activity you do. We want real wages to increase, right? That's a good thing. It's a measure of economic welfare. But the budget forecasts have, have very small growth and the, the amount of growth is roughly forecasting error as far as I can work out. So it could be completely wrong. Um, now, why is that? It's because there's no story or no deep story about productivity in this budget, or in fact in Australia in recent terms. Real wages will grow uh, when the what economists call the marginal product of labour, that is productivity of labour, increases. Uh, so we really need systematic uh, measures in place to start mm. to increase productivity. Now, there are a few things in the budget that are claimed to be about productivity, um, but there's not that many. If we think about some of those uh, big infrastructure projects, 
something like the, the very large Hell's Gate Dam proposed in Queensland. Um, it's a long way off, right? Uh, it's going to take a lot of work to establish a new irrigation area in Queensland. We know from experience how hard it is to establish those irrigation areas. So we won't really know whether this has had any impact for several years to come, um, assuming the government maintains attention and does uh, a lot of um, reporting on how that project's going. I guess the other thing that's missing in the budget, well, it's half there, right? So in the budget, there's a lot of money to disaster recovery. Um, a lot of money goes, already pre-announced, of course, going into uh, the floods in New South Wales and Queensland, but there's really nothing at all about resilience of the Australian economy and the Australian community to the reasonable expectation of many, many more floods and other climate events. And so that's the climate change side of this, the adaptation bit. Um, there's a lot of information started to come out prior to the budget about you know, which, which um, bits of Australia are exposed to sea level rise. Uh, we already have a pretty good understanding, or they do in Queensland and New South Wales, about which bits are exposed to flooding, but there's nothing there about increasing resilience. So what we tend to do is we have a flood, we rebuild, we assume everything's fine. We have another flood, we rebuild, we assume everything's fine. We actually need to build in some climate resilience. And then the last point on the actual climate part of the budget, uh, there's really no action there at all. What we have is actually declining funding over a number of years to the various climate projects that are in place. Presumably, this is something that will come out in the election. Excellent, David. So really what we're saying, uh, business as usual after the election. Um, so spending to uh, head into the election. Um, now, first question. So we're on to our Q&A section. If you have any further questions, just pop them in the, the uh, comments box. I, I've got some questions here and my team has uh, come up with what they believe. And I think it's worth the price of the ticket. The first question to David. Uh, first up, everyone wants to know, when is the price of fuel coming down? It won't be today. Um, so it's going to depend on the, on, the, on the fuel chains and when they last replenish their big tanks, which sit, sit underneath the service station. That's already got excise paid on it. So um, it'll be when that cycle continues, the fuel price should come down by 20 odd cents a litre. Of course, it might not because anything could happen internationally. If the global price goes up, then we might not actually see a decline at all. We'll just see it lower than what it otherwise would have been. But it'll take probably, depending on the cycle of, of individual retailers, you know, a week or two weeks for this to, to force its way through. Yeah. So next question's for Mary. Um, you know, there, there are a number of uh, issues at the moment, supply chain, et cetera, and inflation uh, and, and, and tax as well. Are there enough tax measures in there to help with the current issues that Australian businesses are and the community are facing, Mary? is no. Um, I mean, I mentioned earlier, this is a very short-sighted budget. There's actually no long-term measures to address any of the ongoing issues like cash flow. Um, so let me give you some examples probably from a corporate tax perspective, which is my background. Um, I would have loved to see the government extending the temporary full expensing provisions and, and the instant asset write-off provisions, or even better, make them permanent. Um, businesses are actually facing a lot of cash flow issues, supply chain issues, and, and, and these, issue, these issues may have prevented them from actually investing immediately. Um, so the fact that those 
provisions will end next year uh, would make it difficult for them um, and also makes it very difficult for them to, to plan for the future. We need you know, an ongoing simple capital allowance regime to make it easier for them to make decisions and, and to follow the incentives from the government. And, and to support that, I also think that the, the, the lost carryback rules that the government introduced at the beginning of the pandemic, again, that's going to come to an end. Um, again, if that could be extended, um, the two provisions can work hand in hand to support our businesses to improve cash flow, to invest in the future, innovate, and actually create more jobs for Australian community. And that's what's most important to our business now. Yeah, and that's a great point because uh, we need lots of jobs because with the rising cost of living, we may all have to work uh, two of them at once, um, which is over to you, Effie. Uh, with this rising cost of living, and it's, a, it's an issue we hear spoken about every day, do you feel that the budget does enough to um, address that, to help families and individuals in Australia? Yeah, well, I touched on a little bit that at the beginning because for me that was, um, I, I guess, you know, the hero, if you can kind of put to put it that way, in the sense of addressing the immediate needs of, of consumers at the moment. Um, is it enough? Well, you know, we're never ever satisfied in its entirety, but I, I, I guess. When I looked at all the pre-budget submissions, and I, I didn't go through all of them, I'll be honest, there was over like four, 500 sitting there. There were some absolutely amazing propositions, proposals to help combat affordability, to, to help um, with uh, household costs and so on. At the very core, some of the basic just didn't happen. And whether it's, uh, you know, not policy, right policy, I'm putting that aside. But as far as low income earners, and especially those on welfare on job seeker and rent assistance, nothing really there for long term and there's a real issue with rent at the moment that's not going to go away um, and the rent assist at the moment is just not good enough absolutely had ACOS asking for a 50% increase you know the, 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 that will help a lot of people out of the poverty line but going to like the the tax offset yes that is going that's very targeted um, you know and that's going to hit a, a whole lot of households and, and you know combined you're looking at 3,000 absolutely that 250 in conjunction let's not forget also that pension rates did go up in March they'll go up again in, in September so a household of two people say on the pension that's $500 and another 390 over the next six months. That is a nice injection to help now. Um, and again, petrol, the budget papers, I think, showed a family with two cars, $600 there. Again, I'm saying six months. It's this short term. And this is the thing. Is this enough to take us on to the other side of it? Um, Look, during the past two years, there are plenty of us that have really, you know, really done well out of the pandemic. We've got about $250 billion in a, a wall of savings. So there's a lot of um, a buffer there for a lot of us, but unfortunately, it's not the same for all. Um, I thought they took a measured approach given what they had to spend. Um, and again, it is more calculated situation because it is short term. They, they, these costs, they're relying really on the economy to pull the rest after this six month period. Yeah, that's great. So it's it's good to hear there's some wins there for pensioners, but mm. real concern about what happens after six months. Mm. Uh, David, arguably we could have argued for more fiscal restraint and, and some budget repair. Do you think that should have been the biggest focus in the budget, our long term? It's interesting that uh, there's a sort of a weird kind of anchoring that's taken place here because it's not as bad 
as the previous forecast, mm. it's a, presumed to be good. So your forecast error turns into optimism. It's a, it's a very strange thing. I think that the challenge with budget deficits going on forever is that they make life much harder for every subsequent government, whether they're the same flavour or not. Um, the key principle of, of budgets, right, is that you have to convince yourself that what you're spending money on is better than giving it back to the taxpayer in the first mm. place, right? So you need to have a benefit cost criteria for all budget spending. When you've got a lot of debt, that makes it harder because not only do you have to think about, oh, I could have given it back to the taxpayer, but you also have to think about, oh, I could have used it or I should have used it to pay off debt. So I think you can make an argument that it's not quite as rosy as it appears because of the forecast error, um, but at the same time, this is a very reactive budget, reacting to, to short-term mm. things. So that's the reality, I guess, of, of what they put in place. Yeah, and, and speaking of debt, not only do we have government debt, we've got personal debt increasing to uh, record levels due to the rises in, in property prices. How is the government going to manage this high household debt to GDP ratio? Well, low interest rate policy, quantitative easing, easing guaranteed way to get people to raise their debt, right? I think really the only, the only long-run solution for this is real wage growth. You know in the accounting profession, debt's not an issue per se as long as you have the capability to pay it off, as long as the growth in your income essentially is greater than the interest rate that you're paying. So again, it's all of those factors that lead to uh, microeconomic improvements that lead to real wage growth, hmm. which will ultimately um, sort out debt issues. Which points to that shortfall you raised around policy on productivity, which will drive wages growth. Um, so, Paul, uh, the Canberra Times this morning, their front page is very uh, colourful and there's a heading on it that says, uh, whatever floats your vote. Uh, clearly, the government's relying on this budget to uh, bring home the bacon of an election win. Uh, is it enough? Can, can it do the trick? Well, we, um, you know, I'd make very similar points to the ones um, the, that I made before. I think that... Um, uh, I, I think it, it does really come down to uh, trust. Uh, there is an argument, and I've seen some analysis. I went back and had a look at some of the analysis after the Costello budget of uh, 2007, and, and there was a view that by turning on its head the uh, narrative of fiscal rectitude uh, and of, and, and of uh, criticising debt and deficit, um, Howard and Costello, even though they were still in very healthy surplus at that time, um, you might remember, were accused of spending like drunken sailors. In fact, during, during that election, Kevin Rudd said, Mr. Howard, when is this crazy spending going to end? You know, which was turning on its head the very things that Howard and Costello used to be able to say about the Labor Party. Mm. Uh, so now, now we're in the situation where uh, we're, we're no longer talking about um, debt and deficit so much. We're talking about growing the economy. And it is true uh, that politically, it, if we can grow the economy, we can then start repairing the budget in a less painful way. But there is no doubt, uh, and I saw a graph that um, uh, the other day pointing out that what the government has committed itself to, the spending graph is that high and the revenue graph is this high. And the only way to fix that is either by big expenditure cuts uh, or raising taxes. Um, that's a discussion that really, I think, grown-up governments are going to have to have. 
but you don't have that sort of discussion as Bill Shorten found out, this side of mm. an election. Yeah, which is interesting. You mentioned Labor a couple of times there. Great questions come through uh, uh, asking about Labor promising a, a budget of its own uh, if it wins and, and perhaps a radical rewrite. I mean, are they really going to unpick the uh, checks off the how-to-vote cards? Well, no, they're certainly not going to do that. In, in fact, they will wave it through. I, I haven't checked today. Uh, I noticed that um, there was some speculation that all of that will be passed through the parliament, if not today, tomorrow. So all of that is safe. You know, you can take your money and run. Uh, but uh, Jim Chalmers, the shadow treasurer, has said that they will do their own budget, which in an election context immediately immediately puts in bold relief that what we saw last night was an election manifesto rather than, you know, uh, the sort of budget that has the credibility of Treasury and we're standing back doing the absolute best for the country. Uh, I think the charge that you're first doing the absolute best for yourself probably can stick. Uh, but Chalmers says they will look at it according to their, um, uh, Labor will look at it according to its priorities. Uh, they're not promising some draconian or radical rewrite at all, mm. but on the question of productivity, they believe that their uh, childcare package, which would see 90% of all families getting relief, will drive productivity, and and that that's very expensive, um, but but that 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 would mean that they'll have to rearrange a few things to make room for that. That's the sort of thing we're talking about. One last point I'd make is whether it's the Liberals or Labor talking about what they're going to do for us at this point of time, they are all borrowing. Okay, yeah, they very are good all point. Borrowing. Yep. Yes. And uh, look, the next question ties in with that, and 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 I think this is really going to have an impact on votes as well. Is uh, the, with the impacts, Effie, with the impacts of um, rate heights on the horizon, did, did the budget go any way to help with uh, home loan affordability? Yeah. Uh, look, it's interesting. If I can just add a little bit onto with, with interest rates. So, so we're, you know, we're hearing, well, I'm reading economists now, reviewing what their forecasts may be. You know, when you push a lot of money out, you can run the risk of adding to the inflationary pressure. So there is thought out there that if we don't get this balance right, then the RBA will have to come out earlier maybe, harder, more so, whatever, with interest rates. So some economists now are saying, well, that June forecast of a 0.15% rise in the cash rate, um, maybe 0.4 now. Um, and June is what, what a lot of economists are looking at. So looking at interest rates now, I can tell you that the cheapest rate um, on our database, you're looking at 1.79. That's a variable rate out there for new homeowners. And this is the key thing. You've got to be new to get these deals. Um, to lock in a fixed rate now, you are going to pay a premium for that comfort. Those fixed rates have gone. Even the cheapest, the cheapest two uh, three-year rate is 2.39. So you can see the premium you're paying, 1.79, 2.39. Look at the difference, then think, well, how many rate hikes do I need to get there to get to break even? Should I do it in a, in a three-year period or not? So these are the questions consumers are asking and, and quite hard to, to give an answer to because it's a very personal thing. Five-year. The, the, uh, the average rate is about 3.91. Again, you're paying a premium. And only last week, we saw Australia's biggest bank, the Commonwealth Bank, reduce its variable rate. So here we've got, we're talking about rate hikes, and we've got not only CBA, Westpac did it. I'm seeing quite a lot of rate drops on variable rates. But, and the back door, interest rates on fixed going up. So, you know, the devil's advocate in me is basically saying, oh, hold it, well, why is that happening? 
obviously to get the customers through they've got them on their books and it's a case then that they can play around with their margins once the banks once the rba does increase rates so the reason i, I wanted to, to highlight this is because we have got in the budget these home buy schemes um, and both parties labor has a, a, a proposal and we've got the coalition with theirs now and they've introduced a regional one so if you're not quite sure of this or if you've got kids that are interested in buying a place or something like that this is an opportunity for people to buy a home with as little as 2% deposit, 5% as well, but two as well if you're a single parent on a new home. And the thing here is that you avoid lenders mortgage insurance. And we know part of the battle is saving for this deposit to get in. So look, there are pros and cons with these home schemes. I'm all for people being able to jump in. Lenders mortgage insurance is, I'm afraid to say, a ripoff. I'm not a big fan of it. It's not portable. It's quite expensive. Um, but the thing is also, if you've got a rising interest rate market, we know that property prices are falling. Is there a risk there of people jumping in and getting into a negative equity situation? I mean, you, home ownership is for a long term. So, you know, I'm not too worried about that, but it's something that needs to be addressed with people. The other thing is these caps, I was surprised to see that the budget didn't play around with the caps. I know Labor is looking at uh, reviewing the caps. And what I mean by caps, the caps on the properties that you can buy, where you can buy and so on. Um, they're reviewing it every six months, I believe. Prices have gone up over 20% of the past year. And I'll give you an indication for, for a um, new home, if you're buying a new one under the regional uh, uh, plan, New South Wales is quite lucrative, actually. It's 950000 that's your cap. But looking at CoreLogic data, overall, there are only 30 4% of dwellings that actually qualify under these caps. So, you know, it's not as easy. I feel that these are, you know, there were some great concepts that were also proposed in the pre-budget submissions, a national housing, uh, a national shared housing equity scheme by the Grattan Institute. Believe it or not, states, territories have this. And a lot of people have got in and bought properties with, say, you know, their state government. Um, so they're out there. Another one was a land rent scheme, um, uh, making social housing, rent to buy and so on. I think we need to kind of keep this uh, conversation happening um, because this doesn't solve the pressure of pricing. It's just getting people in. So, look, um, I, I guess they're, they're my personal thoughts on, on the schemes. So it opens the door to a few, but not everyone uh, getting access to it. Uh, so if you, uh, staying with you, another question is um, the impact of the budget on small business and retirees. Uh, what's going to happen with them? Well, the, the, the small businesses, there was... There, was, there wasn't that much. Like, I would have liked to see more. Um, the apprenticeship, that was a great um, uh, uh, definite win. We're seeing the end of some small business initiatives. Um, we've also got with retirees, as I was saying before, they've extended the, um, uh, the, uh, the reduction in the drawdown for, for, for super, which is great, I guess, with these volatile times and not wanting to um, uh, take cash out. There was a, a few things there. I think that the, the big pressure with, with small businesses still remains, and that is that supply chain issue, the labour force. Um, and I would have probably liked to see more around that. Yeah, excellent. Uh, David, uh, back on to climate change. Um, we've got a question that comes through and it's asked, what's 
in the budget for electric vehicles, do we have anything? And uh, do we actually have anything on climate action in there? What's the long-term funding position for climate action looking like in the budget? So there's really nothing new on climate in the, well, it's not, I'll qualify this in a minute, mostly nothing new on climate. A couple of small changes in that um, farmers who, are, who can make, make money on carbon farming of various kinds, there's a small change in the tax arrangements. Uh, there's an already pre-announced uh, change to the ways, the way in which uh, people have already earned so-called carbon credits um, and contracted them to the government. They're going to be allowed to on-sell them now. Um, that was announced uh, a couple of weeks ago. Immediately left, led to a, a very dramatic reduction in the price of those units. Um, nothing really new on electric vehicles. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, we know from data from all of the other oil shocks I've talked about that when there's an oil shock, the composition of Australia's car fleet slowly changes. You tend to buy fewer big cars and more small cars. And then as the price goes down, that goes back again. Um, so the, one of the best things you could do for electric vehicle demand is, of course, high uh, fuel prices. So that, um, um, but mind you, even with the 20 cent reduction, fuel prices are still very high. So there's still good incentive to buy electric vehicles, but really at a Commonwealth level, nothing new on that. There's a range of state measures and so on that are, that are in place. As I said, I imagine climate change uh, may well become an issue for the election. And there's, there is, of course, money that's always left in the budget, things that are decided but not yet announced down on the bottom line of one of the tables there. So there is scope for, for that sort of stuff to come along. Okay. Now, you've touched on and, and we've seen uh, oil prices are up, fuel prices are up, uh, largely because of action that's occurring over the other side of the world. Uh, there is a question that's come through around uh, the end of globalisation as we know it, and there is some uh, talk about us becoming more regional, less globalised. Uh, does that have any implications for the budget? I think it's, it, it has implications in the long run for, for the budget. So Australia as a what we say in economics, a small open economy. That is, we're not very big uh, and we really need international trade. We don't have a big enough domestic market. We re we've relied on globalisation as a big part of our growth. A lot of commentators are now, incl including um, the chairman of BlackRock, right, one of the most successful funds managers, came out the other week and said, look, this is the end of globalisation. right?" This, uh, and this is because of various shocks. So COVID being one of them, the international security issues being another, and a range of other things. I think in the long run, this is a serious issue for Australia, and this is where we need to think about resilience and think about how our economy is structured. Um, doing more domestically may be an option for some things, and I think the, you know, the possibility of, well, the, the funding that's provided to vaccines, for example, to be manufactured here is a good idea. Um, other things we're not so good at, so that there's really some hard questions to be had about the decline in, in globalisation. And, and I think it, it links more generally to the fact that the world actually is a tougher place than we thought it was. Right? It's a tougher place than we've really witnessed, say, over the last 10 years when Australia's generally had very, very respectable growth. Um, you know, the natural environment's not as kind to us, uh, including viruses. The international security situation is dramatically different to what we thought. Um, our, our enemies, whoever they may turn out to be, have various ways of, uh, of harming us. And, and of course, the cybersecurity um, 
um, measures in the budget. By the way, that's got to win the acronym award, the Red Spice, right? That's the best <laughs> acronym ever uh, in a budget measure. So they're, they're good ideas. But um, I think really we need a lot of hard thinking about how Australia can remain resilient to a lot of these changes that are all happening at once and they won't go away, right? These are going to continue. Yeah, I do love Red Spice myself. <laughs> so we're talking about pressures on our economy. Uh, Mary, if I could ask you, there's a lot of talk about inflation, uh, supply change. Surely this should lead to some reform and we've got another budget without much reform. Is, is the Australian tax system keeping up with the pace of change? Yeah, I mean, you've touched on that. Um, surely we need a tax reform. So obviously we haven't had any tax reform for, for, for a long time. Um, and purely because of that, our tax system is not keeping up with, with what's happening around the world, at least not at a fast enough pace. Um, obviously with a pandemic, it's, we're third year into the pandemic, the reform agenda has been delayed and this being a, a budget, a pre-election budget, no one actually expected any sort of tax reform. Um, because of not having any sort of tax reform in the last few years, there's a lot of shortcomings in our ta current tax system. So, you know, I can na name a few examples. For example, our, our current government's relying on the collection of personal tax, corporate tax, uh, rather than say broadly apply consumption taxes like GST to generate majority of the tax receipts. Um, that itself it puts us in, in a very different position compared to the other events. Um, economies around the world where they actually place a lot higher emphasis on the collection of consumption tax, like the UK, for example. Um, GST, is, it's a lot more stable compared to the company tax. Um, it does mean that because of that, our tax system is, is not very efficient. And in some cases, it can actually undermine productivity and even hinder economic growth. Um, the other example I could think of, for example, is the, our tax system continue to impose very high compliance costs. Um, we can see that coming out of this budget, the government's trying to do something to improve compliance costs, but the real high compliance costs is to do with our tax law. It's actually very complex. Um, the fact that we've actually got a, a 1936 Income Tax Assessment Act, as well as the 1997 Income Tax Assessment Act, that makes it really confusing. And, and the process to try to write rewrite the 36 Act um, into the 1997 Act, that's actually taken 20 years. Um, and just trying to get, get you know, the legislation into plain language, we're struggling. So you can imagine how much uncertainty that's actually giving um, to our taxpayers. And, and the fact that every time if we want to introduce new uh, new tax laws or, or have any sort of review, they're subject to years of discussion and then we don't see any implementation out of those processes. Again, these things actually put us behind compared to the rest of the world. Um, the fact that we're at the beginning of the end of a pandemic, um, our government should really be planning for a more comprehensive tax reform uh, so that we can keep up with what's happening around the world. Obviously, any sort of design, consultation, explanation, or implementation of a tax reform will take years to come. But the key thing is we've got to take action now. Yeah, and a question has come through around uh, general company tax rates, nothing in the budget, but will they reduce? Um, I, I wish I could say yes, but we, we've seen that, you know, the, the government actually did try a few years ago um, to try to introduce the 25% uh, company tax rate across the board for all corporates. Um, obviously, 
it, it wasn't entirely successful um, in that attempt. In the end, the government had to compromise to get the rate reduction through the parliament by just limiting that 25% only to the SME company. So um, aggregate, with aggregated turnover of less than 50 um, million. That itself actually, again, puts us behind compared to the other OECD countries. Um, our, our rate, of, our general rate of 30% is actually almost 6% above the OECD average. Like we see in New Zealand, South Korea, US, UK, um, with, with lower company tax rate. I, I do think that there needs to be a clearer plan on, on how large business um, could benefit from, from, from a lower rate, how it could actually benefit the Australian economy. Um, and there also needs to be broader awareness about the importance of, of this rate to ensure that you know, Australia remains competitive in attracting any sort of international capital to develop our economy. Um, the, the large foreign owned companies are the ones that are most affected by Australia's un, uncompetitive company rate. So they're, they're the ones that are more likely to have the mobile capital and by having an uncompetitive rate, uh, they're the ones who are who will move out of Australia. So I really call on the government to to you know have another go in in um, trying to reduce that rate down to a more competitive rate. Thank you, Mary. Now we have heard Effie say that you know winners are in this budget is uh, individuals and retirees, but there's a cost to that. Uh, David, a question has come through for you. Um, so we've got a cost for these individual budget measures. Is there, is there any evidence that they'll generate generate benefits greater than their cost? That's the that's the, that's the multi million dollar question with with budgets, Andrew. Um, there's no evidence provided in the budget itself, right? So when a particular measure comes along, whether it be you know building a dam, whether it be cybersecurity, um, we don't have. Um, on budget night, you might have, you know, in subsequent days in individual portfolios, the underlying benefit cost analysis of, of those measures. Um, we don't have it at the moment. And so what we really need to do is make sure we put a bit of discipline on governments to, to keep reporting on the measures that they've put in place. Um, we have pretty good uh, principles for this kind of thing within, the, within Australia. Um, most measures are meant to have a benefit cost analysis or a formal business case uh, is not always done. Um, and some things are going to inevitably be very, very difficult. So the nine odd billion dollars for cybersecurity, which I suspect is a very good idea, we might never know right, whether that worked or not by the very nature of the, of the beast. Right? Um, clearly, a lot of it needs to take place in secret. Uh, clearly, the government can't just come out and say, well, we stopped X, Y, and Z and therefore saved you, saved the entire economy. So they're very difficult things. We need to here just rely on the good processes of government, that is government in the broader sense, in the sense of the, the public service and the, and the good practices that take place to keep track of these spending measures and see whether they, they really do generate benefits. Yeah. Now, back onto the, the politics there, uh, Paul. Um, what will be the biggest decider at the next federal election, fear or the future? <laughs> uh, well, fear is uh, considered to be the strongest emotion driving uh, voters. Uh, and, um, and you might have noticed that the government has uh, spent a lot of time in uh, recent weeks and months trying to instill fear into us about the prospect of an Anthony Albanese-led government. Uh, again, um, Maybe they've left it a bit too late. 
but uh, the research on both the political parties suggests that um, Albanese is much less scary to uncommitted voters than Bill Shorten was. So in a sense, um, Morrison has lost the advantage of having an opponent who was perceived to be um, less trustworthy than him. Uh, and that's that's a pretty big uh, a pretty big issue. Um, so, and in fact, you could argue that it's turned around. And um, I saw the comment recently that uh, that the biggest mountain Scott Morrison has to climb is himself. Thanks, Paul. And that's uh, pretty close to all we have time for today. Uh, only time will tell whether this budget is. A that sugar hit that will sway the Australian voter. Uh, the budget's out. We've got the Labor Party reply coming up. Um, so that brings us to our conclusion. I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. I'd like to thank our panellists, uh, David, Paul, uh, Mary and Effie. Thank you. And, and I hope you all found that information valuable. Um, you can get more detail on our budget by downloading our budget update, which is at rsm.com.au or at the link in the, um, in the uh, comments there. As we conclude, you'll be direct, redirected to a quick survey and the, uh, the conclusion of the broadcast uh, would be great if you could uh, just take a couple of minutes to fill in and share your thoughts with us. Thank you for joining us today and have a great day. Talk big, create, save and protect with RSM.